Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Emerson Powery. Welcome, Dr. Powery. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. I'm so excited uh, to have you on uh, to speak with us today. But before we dive into our topic, um, let our audience know a little bit about who you are and, and the work that you do. Uh, my name is Emerson Powery, and I teach at Messiah College just outside of Harrisburg in Pennsylvania. And I've been teaching uh, at the college level for 22 years. I am a, uh, my research area and uh, degrees come from uh, Princeton Seminary and Duke University. I have a PhD from Duke University in, in biblical studies. And uh, I've been teaching biblical studies for 22 years. I I write in the area of gospel research and also in hermeneutics. I'm interested in, in how um, particularly uh, marginalized communities, how they investigate and read scripture and how it informs their lives. That's awesome. And that's um, something we're going to be talking to you about today. You co-wrote a book called The Genesis of Liberation. Um, what made you want to, to write this book? This project actually started a long time ago. I was a grad student and I was a grad student, as I said earlier, in biblical studies in New Testament specifically. But um, Reverend Bill Turner, Dr. Bill Turner, who uh, just announced his retirement from Duke Divinity School, teaching a class on African-American religious history. And he asked me to study to, can you repeat that? Your your connection went out. I'm sorry. Okay. So uh, Dr. Bill, Dr. Bill Turner, who teaches at Duke Divinity School, uh, was teaching a class on African-American religious history when I was in grad school. And um, I was studying, researching New Testament. Rodney Sadler, the co-author of the book, was researching Old Testament. And he asked the two of us if we'd be interested in precepting this class. And we thought, well, 
Why not? This is kind of, it's outside of our research area, but it would be great to kind of uh, to talk through African American religious history with students who were in the MDiv in the master's program there. And then what we discovered, what Rodney and I discovered, was in reading through lots of these materials, there were lots of people who were uh, interpreting scripture. And particularly, we got interested in some of the small selections of slave narratives that were in the volumes that we were reading. And we started to observe how uh, formerly enslaved individuals were reading scripture. So, so the conversation started a long time ago. And then Rodney and I had to finish up dissertations. We started teaching. We started raising families. Uh, but we kept that conversation alive, and we and we we would get together pretty regularly uh, every other year. Plus, we met at a national meeting every year, and just kept the conversation going. And eventually, in two thousand four, we did a conference paper, and at that conference paper, there was an editor of a publishing house who heard the paper and said, "You all need to publish this. You need to turn this into a book." Uh, so the project has been brewing a long time. Uh, even while we're doing other things, but but it began there. It began in Dr. Turner's class, uh, Dr. Bill Turner's class on African American religious history. That's awesome. That's awesome, and I'm so glad y'all did uh, decide to turn it into a book because I think it's a very helpful research resource. Oh, um, when we think about um, how slaves were interpreting scripture, there's a false narrative that we've been dealing with that uh, people think slaves were kind of just taking scripture and weren't critically thinking through that, uh, what they were reading. Um, how was how were slaves wrestling with scripture and how did they see, well, before we even get to that, what did they think about scriptures um, being authoritative? How did they yeah. feel? Right, so uh, when we talk about um, the in, enslaved population in terms of literacy rates, right? The literacy rates were very low. So James Hope Franklin in his uh, classic history says that the numbers were somewhere around five to 6% of folks who were enslaved who could, who could read. So, so, so uh, access to scripture actually comes through the hearing of it, right? Other people are reading it. And whether it's uh, in these, contrived spaces where African-Americans had to listen in to the master's services and they would hear it. So that's that's one way that they would have access. Another way would be to head off into the brush harbors and to have songs singing scripture, right? So it's access to that way. Um, so they understood that, uh, that this was a vital, uh, the Bible was a vital, scriptures were vital to how people thought about um, Faith in God, relationship to God, living in this in this land. Uh, so, so authority issues. They weren't necessarily talking about it, but in terms of how it was functioning, it was functioning authoritatively. Uh, and then those right. One of the best uh, areas that we can think about how early, early, formerly, uh, even enslaved individuals at this point, not formally enslaved, but while they're in enslavement in wrestling with scripture would be the spirituals, right? So the songs that are being sung that would, um, that would wrestle with scripture in, these, in this way um, and would wrestle with scripture critically. So someone like David Goatley has done fantastic studies on looking at the spirituals and thinking about how 
uh, how enslaved people could sing songs about Jesus's suffering and crucifixion without lots of references to resurrection, for example, because they themselves were in the middle of suffering. So they, they, they could sing songs in which Jesus was attached to their experience. But to talk, to sing songs about resurrection, when many of them were still in the middle of the crucifix in some ways, um, didn't seem to make sense, right? So there was this critical awareness of what they were doing as it came to uh, this negotiation with scripture in light of their condition inside the Americas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a critical, there was a real kind of fundamental critical way of engaging scripture and engaging their world and great engaging their masters um, that, that moves really beyond the imagination. Kind of, it was much more complicated than what you're saying. Like you're saying, right, this kind of simplified narrative that we've been given, much more complicated than that. Uh, and we hear about that. So someone like Harriet Jacobs could say uh, the the white master would preach his sermon or would bring in, she talks about a number of guests that they would bring in to preach. And we all knew the sermon that they were going to preach, we were going to listen to it. And then the rest of us were going to get up and walk out. Right. So this is really awareness of what's gospel message and what's what something different, right. From what they're doing over here now. So they, they understood how to critically engage scripture in ways that move beyond uh, these simplified portrayals that were given. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that I think that's so powerful and something that should be noted uh, because, yeah. you know, I think it's, it's those false narratives are are put and imposed on us to, to, to make it seem like we're dumb or we can't process information, even right. as slave people. Um, yeah. And so it's really important, the work that you're doing to others to dispel those uh, false narratives. Um, how were slaves interpreting scripture? And you you talked about um, them honing in on the suffering of Jesus uh, versus the resurrection of Jesus. And um, I know throughout the history of African American preaching, a lot has linked on the narratives, especially in Old Testament. Um, were slaves doing? Um, how were slaves interpreting um, scripture? Yeah, so one of the interesting findings, we had a number of them, but one of the interesting findings to me personally was when you break out uh, the slave narratives into the historical period of slave, uh, the narratives before the Civil War and the narratives after the Civil War, right? So so using that Civil War, that 1861-65 period as an interesting dividing point, there is very little within the slave narrative tradition prior to the Civil War that draws on the Exodus motif. Mm. To me, I, I was just, I, I'm kind of astounded by some of that. Uh, the Exodus motif becomes more important in the slave narrative tradition post-Civil War. Mm. Uh, so uh, in some ways, the experience of freedom from slavery in the 19th century was attached to a holding up of the Exodus story, freedom from Egypt, right? And um, Sylvester Johnson, uh, in his uh, work, on the myth of Ham has actually made a similar comment. He wasn't looking at slave narratives, but he was looking at lots of other material. And he also makes this same uh, observation that Exodus motif was something that was drawn on much more fully later. So it's not that folks before Civil War didn't talk about Moses or anything like that. It's just that this kind of critical engagement with the Exodus story as a way of thinking about the collective, the, the, uh, all the people, right? And, um, and how we as a people, that 
that kind of investigation with Exodus comes much more fully after Civil War. Um, so, so that was one interesting finding. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, the, the, the engagement with scripture around issues of Paul, right? Slaves obey your masters. Uh, this is a dominant motif from the master's side. How did folks uh, wrestle with that? Uh, and there are a variety of ways that they, that they wrestle with that. So there were some like um, uh, William Anderson who would, who would hold up Paul in, um, in positive ways. So as far as slaves obey your masters, he would just kind of say, I mean, that is what it is. He didn't really talk about that much. But Paul understood suffering. Paul was beaten. Paul was abused in his missionary travels. So he would kind of he would kind of play with Paul in some ways. Paul's experience as tapping into our experience, or our experience tapping into Paul's experience. That that kind of investigation. Uh, others would take the slaves obey your masters, and some of them would push back. So someone like Leonard Ball would say in 1859, you know, I heard lots of sermons on slaves obey your masters. What I never heard was a preacher take Ephesians 5, 9, after slaves obey your masters, where it says, masters, and you too ought to be kind to slaves because you have a master in heaven. So this way of kind of Leonard Ball would say, I've never heard a sermon on that, right? So the sense of people are interpreting these things and not paying attention to the whole context, right? So you have some of that going on in the slave now. Let's do a fuller reading, a fuller reading of the Slaves Obey Your Masters. So you'd have some of that going on. And then you have others who would say, uh, I mean, to be fair, right? Others would say, um, I, I, have, um, I have heard too many sermons on Slaves Obey Your Masters. I'm going to hang on to the God of the ancestors from my African ancestors, but I can't deal with this Christian faith because all they talk about is slaves obey your masters, right? So you have that showing up uh, as well uh, in the narratives. Uh, so, so there are lots of different ways. Uh, and, you, and when you pull it all together, you realize that there, there were some rich conversations going on among enslaved black folk about these difficult texts. Uh, this wasn't just, they said it, and because they said it, I believe it. It was a real sense of, uh, a, a theological sense of God is a God who loves us, created this body, so must love me. And therefore, how do I take that and understand these scripture texts? What they're saying, what the masters are saying, what the white masters are saying can't be right. Something's off about that, right? And so an access, access was a problem, access to literacy, right? There are state laws in some places where you, you can't even teach enslaved people to read. And some of that will show up. Of course, the slave narratives come from formerly enslaved people who have escaped and all of whom have had some access to literacy, right? So they're from this small uh, group, but they are representative. They tell stories about how other folks trying to get access to read. And even when they're hindered from that, they still understood what was good preaching, you know, the religion of Jesus, as it was called frequently in the slave narratives, and this other stuff that we were hearing what Frederick Douglass would say, the Christianity of the land, right? The Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of the land. Douglass would put it that starkly. Uh, folks understood these differences. They understood them and they, and they, they were together. They were in community. They, there was lots of rich theological conversation going on. 
um, in order for them to develop this kind of theological consciousness, right? So this sense that uh, trouble will not last always, right? This sense that we are now being um, in the midst of a, a bodily suffering, but where does Jesus stand on, on in, 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 with respect to this, right? They would say, uh, there's one uh, slave narrative that would say, uh, Jesus at the slave auction, Jesus is the one who is being taken up on the podium and he too is enslaved. He too is being sold off to the highest bidder. Mm. So, so they, they understood how to, how to wrestle with biblical texts, right? The greatest sufferer, Jesus, is on our side. He's not on your side in order to maintain our suffering. So there's all kinds of uh, ways that they were uh, wrestling critically with sacred scripture and in a way of uh, both, both understanding their own experience, the present experience of suffering, but also kind of pushing back against these larger theologies and ideologies that were maintaining their enslavement, right? Keeping them enslaved, people who are using scripture in order to keep them in this, uh, to keep them in this disembodied state. They were, they were living out an embodied Christianity. You can't have gospel message unless it's embodied. That's the way they, they kind of push through. So, um, sorry, I've kind of, kind of moving a lot of different ways, but, but kind of open up so many, uh, possibilities in terms of scriptural interpretation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I love um, one of the things you mentioned um, early on in the book was talking about how slaves, because scripture was being, I guess, misinterpreted in a sense, wanted to read the whole, the wanted to learn how to read so they could read the Bible. Um, you yeah. mentioned Frederick Douglass and his passion um, to, to learn how to read so he could read the Bible for himself. Um, yeah. Was that just a common way that, Slaves thought like I need to get I need to read this book I need to understand it for myself and not just be spoon fed. Yeah, I mean there was lots of that going on. Harriet Jacobs tells some stories along those lines. Of course, Frederick Douglass talks about his own uh, finding pages, and he actually goes into this more fully not in the first narrative uh, in the eighteen forty seven uh, narrative, but he goes into it even more in the eighteen fifty five narrative, and then in his third narrative, which he wrote towards the end of his life, which is a much bigger longer narrative, uh, not just about post-Civil uh, War period for his life, but even looking back on his earlier life, he talks about finding pages that were damp and wet and kind of trying to dry them off and collect them, finding pages of scripture. So getting access was important. Uh, that's a big part of it. And then trying to uh, figure out not just how to read, right, the, the basics of reading literacy, but 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 to actually hermeneutically, right? How to read it well. Uh, there was also lots of that going on. Um, uh, Samuel Ward, who published a narrative in 1856 and is actually a, uh, a narrative that was not published in the States, it was published in London, uh, but then eventually uh, made it over to the States. He talks about uh, the Curse of Ham, for example. In the Curse of Ham story, he says, uh, and he actually cites several people, several uh, white, prominent white ministers who are uh, positively, he's citing them. He said, because Noah, Noah was a drunken man. How are you going to all of a sudden put the entire slave system on Noah cursing 
and he didn't curse Ham, he cursed Canaan, right? So Sam, Sam, Samuel Ward is doing this whole kind of real critical investigation of the text, drawing on sources, and uh, was a prominent preacher himself. Um, so lots of lots lots going on in terms of access, literacy, uh, even as laws are imposed, right? So Frederick Douglass's story, as as you mentioned, and we talk about in the beginning of the book, once he heard his his master say. Why teach a slave to read? He knew that there was, there was some kind of access, right? There was something about getting access to literacy that was very important. Um, and then uh, there's, there's another other part of this um, history that's not as well known. So we talk a little bit about it, uh, the talking book, right? So there's a longer, an older tradition uh, in the earliest narratives in which that start back with the Lado Equiano's uh, 1789 narrative that talks about uh, what, what we call the trope of the talking book. And actually, we're not calling it that. We're actually borrowing Henry Louis Gates, who was the first that I know of to discover this trope. Um, and, and what we do is we kind of build on it because we found implications of the trope later. Uh, Gates uh, says that it, it, it runs out early in the narrative tradition. We think that there's still hints of it later that the book itself talks to people, hmm. right? So Alato Equiano tells a story about being uh, on a ship and his master picks up this book and he can see that the lips of the master are moving sometimes and then sometimes he's silent. And so Equiano, uh, at, who himself is, is illiterate at that point, he becomes quite literate later, but is illiterate at that point, assumes that the book must be be talking. So at one point, then the master um, is off on his rounds and Equiano gets a hold of the book and he takes the book and he opens it up and he says, but it doesn't speak to me. Mm. It doesn't talk to me, right? So eventually that becomes the, the trope of the talking book. Um, and there is this, Henry Louis Gates talks about it as this trope that lots of folks in the earliest tradition of the slave narrative uh, tradition were aware of, and they were, um, they were investigating uh, ways of literacy for talking back to the talking book. So that, that, that's where that, all of that comes from, right? This, but it's a really rich, so even someone like Sojourner Truth, years later, uh, goes one time down to the New York constable to, to her son had been uh, falsely accused and was in prison. And so she went to get him out of jail and uh, she gets over there to the, to the local county courthouse and they bring a book out to her for her to swear on in order to get her son out of prison. And she says, so the first thing I did was I took the book and I put my ear down to it. Again, I think it's, it's tapping into that trope of the talking book, you know, uh, an old tradition within African-American circles about the power of the book to speak, but somehow it's not always speaking to us. Uh, so how do we get it to speak to us, to speak to our condition, to speak in ways that uh, allow us to understand uh, our collective relationship with God, uh, allow us to understand, um, Henry Louis Gates would say, how to truly be American, I mean, in, in, in some ways, or right? how to tap into what folks seem to be, it seems to have some power, so does it have power for us, right? That kind of idea. Uh, and you see that kind of playing out in some of the earlier narratives uh, within the tradition. 
Yeah. That's that's definitely very 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 helpful. Um, yeah. We think when we're thinking through um, just slaves um, understanding scripture, understanding salvation. What made for those who were thinking critically? What still made them hold on to the scriptures of the God of of the Bible versus their the the gods of their ancestors? Yeah, I mean that's a right. That's a good question because that we knew no because again, even within the slave narrative tradition, some people talk about some of their own family members, usually older family members, grandfather, grandmother, who who walked away from Christian faith because of the way it was being lived out in this in this land, right? So so that's a that's a good question. It's a it's a challenging question. So the I mean I mean I, part of from from my from my research from my reading of uh, formerly enslaved folks and and I like to actually refer to the slave narratives as freedom narratives. I do that. We do that in the book partly because none of the narratives actually come from anyone who was enslaved at the time they wrote. Right. Every time they wrote, they are now free. So the freedom narratives. Um, but anyway, within this tradition, there's a real wrestling with Christian faith. Um, there's a real wrestling with, uh, you know, again, the Douglas divide, the Christianity of the land and the Christianity of Christ. Uh, and they seem to have ways to make those clear distinctions. Uh, there, there was one white minister. Uh, I think his name was Pike. I mean, I have that right, but it was in Harriet Jacobs narrative. She, she was going through a series of different white ministers that they kept bringing to the plantation. And she mentions this. I think it's Pike. Anyway, she, she mentions this one that that was actually preaching a good message. She said he was actually talking about kind of a this is my term, not hers, but a social gospel, a gospel that was embodied, that was affecting. We can't treat enslaved people this way. We have to be sure to give plenty of food. And then all of a sudden he started saying, and I'm not so sure slavery, he started calling slavery into question. And then Harry Jacobs says, all of a sudden, when we, those of us who were enslaved, started to appreciate his message, they never invited him back again. Right? He was a traveling, <laughs> he was a traveling minister. Never invited. So they they understood, uh, and that there was an alternative message to the one they were hearing. Uh, so they can they could they could um, they could wrestle with faith and hope and life in Christ in a way that they weren't always hearing around them. So. So that allowed them to kind of tap into uh, hanging on to Christianity, hanging on uh, to scripture, Christian scriptures, hanging on to one another, right? So this collectiveness, this being together was really important. Um, so folks can encourage one another, uh, especially when they can have Brush, Brush Harbor meetings, when they can be alone and actually not just um, songs of, of sorrow, but songs of uplift, right? We can make it. We can make it through. Um, so there was a real kind of collective uh, identity that was important to their general spiritual welfare uh, that allowed them to hang on the way they did. And um, it, it boggles my mind, really, sometimes to think about right when you think about how people complain about the issues they complain about today, issues of faith. Uh, and how they're struggling uh, to imagine that one has no control over one's body 
right? That someone else can make me do whatever they want me to do with my body. And then somehow I can still say, God, I know somehow you're watching over me. I mean, that's a real, it's hard to get my mind around that, right? So um, it's easier for me to understand the people who walked away than it is those who held up, you, you know, you know, and the, the challenges of saying in the middle of this struggle, in the middle of this conflict, in the middle of the hatred, in the middle of the, of the abuse, in the middle of the, they're not even giving me enough to eat, a comfortable place to sleep, then expecting me to work as much as they do, and then saying when they preach to me, oh, and our religious book also says that you should be a slave, and then to say somehow, I believe in God too, uh, you know? I mean, it's a real, uh, it's a real challenge, uh, I think, but I think, I think we, we need to try to understand what they tapped into, what, did, what, did, what allowed them to, to hang on, uh, because I think that's important, important strength, not just for our, uh, for our own collective tradition and the, and the story and the memory, but to recognize that they were in the midst fighting for freedom. They were fighting for their, for their physical freedom and their spiritual freedom, for the freedom to worship God the way they saw fit, right? To kind of uphold the Christianity of Christ and to, to downplay the Christianity of the land. They were, they were fighting for that, and they were very active agents in doing that. They weren't just passive recipients. They weren't just waiting for Lincoln's proclamation, right? Before Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, folks were fighting for freedom. Folks were escaping. Folks were taking the risk to leave their families behind sometimes and then going back in. Henry Bibb, he got caught in Kentucky six, eight times just trying to go back from Canada. He escaped to Canada. He came back looking for his family. Uh, and, and one of those occasions, they said you, he got caught and they said, take everything out of your pockets. And he had a little Bible that cost 50 cents that he had in his pocket, a little tiny pocket Bible. Uh, and and I've actually seen, you know, this is one of the first references I saw. And then I saw in a museum pocket Bibles that could be that small where, where you could actually read them uh, if you have good eyes. You know, so I couldn't read them. But I mean, there were people you could actually read them. Uh, so uh, having access uh, and then collective identity and a spiritual strength that's unimaginable. Uh, many of them uh, were able to hang on to proclaim and to live out an alternative Christian faith than what they were generally experiencing in the land. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier when you talked about um, them interpreting scripture and focusing on certain portions of scripture, uh, uh, pre-Civil War, focusing on the crucifixion, mm -hmm. and then post-Civil War, focusing on the, um, the Moses narrative. Was post-Civil War a shift for them focusing on the resurrection uh, versus focusing on just the uh, the suffering? Yeah, so, so the book focuses on the freedom narratives prior to the Civil War. So that's where most of our attention went. But what little dabbling I did in the others, uh, yes, I think Exodus motif, resurrection motifs, because folks have come into a new space, as challenging as that space became rather quickly, right? Mm -hmm. When you get into the Jim Crow laws and things. Uh, 
but there was a new uh, attention to other portions of scripture that became more prominent in those post-Civil War narratives. Yeah, for sure, that was starting to show up. Mm -hmm. And you can see the change also in some of the spirituals. Uh, some of that change also occurred there. What the what theological issues uh, pre-Civil War were they wrestling with in the narratives outside of slavery? Um, well, uh, I mean, of course, slavery was a, a big one, but also wrestling with issues of racial identity. So the idea that um, that whiteness was the uh, not just preferred, but was the dominant hierarchical in the, in the hierarchy, right? It was the top on the hierarchy. So someone like William Anderson, I mentioned him earlier talking about Paul, but William An Anderson would say the curse of Ham uh, story that's coming from Noah, Genesis 9, is really not the only text that talks about uh, racial identity. If you want to talk about racial identity, let's look at another story. And he would take us over to 2 Kings 5, which is a story about Elisha and his servant named Gehazi. And in that story, uh, a Syrian commander, Naaman, comes to Elisha to get his healing. He's got leprosy. And Elisha tells him, uh, you can go down to the river and get your healing. And he didn't want to do it. He was stubborn at first. And finally, he went down and washed seven times and he got cleansed. And he wanted to give Elisha some payment. And Elisha said, no, he didn't want any money from him. So he leaves. Uh, but before he can get back to his territory, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, tracks him down. And says, oh, by the way, Elisha has to, he has to uh, put on a big banquet and host a bunch of prophets who are coming to town. We could use a little money. So Naaman doesn't mind. He gives him enough money. Gehazi goes back. But before he gets to Elisha, he buries, he hides the money. Right? He puts the money away. So Gehazi is doing his own bidding. He's, he's not following Elisha's command there. He gets to Elisha and Elisha, who is a prophet, right? Elisha's a prophet. He says, I know what you've done, Gehazi. And this is a problem. And the leprosy that was on Naaman is going to come to you. And the King James Version then says at this point, it is a leprosy as white as snow. Now, the Hebrew text, right? Biblical studies is my is my is where I live my life. So uh, the Hebrew text actually doesn't have white. It doesn't have that narrative white as snow. But that's the way the King James has it translated. And that's what everybody's reading in the 19th century. The leprosy will be white as snow. So. William Anderson in the 1850, uh, 47, uh, sorry, 1859 narrative says that's the origins of whiteness, mm. the curse. So before that, if you think about Adam and Eve being made from the soil and the soil was dark, that the origins of people is black people. But now where does whiteness come from? So now you got to explain whiteness. And, and Anderson would say it came from this curse on Gehazi during Elisha's day. And that's the beginning of whiteness. Now that also, of course, ties in to, uh, and now I'm just thinking about 19th century commentators on this, right? So 19th century commentators talk about a lot of Gehazi's greed. They talk about tying uh, economics to preachers and ministry prophethood and all that. Anderson talks about the greed being attached to whiteness, mm. right? So there's this, there's, for him, whiteness is the curse. 
you know, all along people are saying blackness is the curse because of Noah's curse, right? So now he, he, he finds an alternative scriptural narrative to bring into the 19th century world to, 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 to enter into this ideological discussion of where do ethnic groups come from? Uh, it was a prominent discussion that was happening um, around uh, the country in that day. And Anderson was tapping into that conversation. And he says, I've given this talk thousands of times in lots of places, and no one has been able to prove me wrong. That was his, that's how he said it. So, yeah. So that, that's another issue that they were wrestling with, right? That's, mm -hmm. So, Do you see them wrestling with um, ideas like maybe the Trinity and other things like that um, throughout the, any of the narrative? No. Yeah, not, not as much, right? So, so some of that will show up, like there's one conversation uh, where um, um, Randolph and Randolph's narrative, where which he has an 1839 narrative and then he's got an, a, a slightly revised edition in the 1850s. And he talks about, he tells a story. This is not, I don't think this is his position, but he tells a story about one of the auction blocks. Uh, and He's actually the one who tells the story, the one I told earlier about Jesus being up on the podium, right, as, as one who is also being sold off. But in another part of, of the, uh, in another slave auction story he tells, he talks about um, this connection between Jesus and God. And somehow he says one of the traditions that circulated among enslaved people was that uh, that God and Jesus are not quite the same. So it's a Trinitarian discussion are not quite the same because uh, because of Jesus's suffering. So somehow, so right, so that taps back into, and they're not, they're, they're not mentioning any of the ancient patristic folks uh, in that way, but there's this discussion around suffering uh, of Jesus and somehow that makes him not as strong as God. Uh, so, uh, but that's, that's minimal. Uh, you don't see a lot of that kind of reflection going on uh, within the narrative tradition. Uh, but you do tap a little bit. I mean, I like when I find it, when I find something like that, because it does show us evidence of, of larger theological, theological conversations that were going on, even if they are, um, they are formal. They're, uh, sorry, they're less formal than one might, might think. Um, so they're, they're certainly quite informal. And, and Randolph was using it as a way of, of um, he was using that story to, he wasn't trying to then hold up some Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, so he didn't get into that discussion. He used that story as a way of talking about lots of stories were being passed around among enslaved people. So that was one example uh, of those kinds of stories, you know, so. Did, did there, were there any stories I know people were rejecting Christianity, some slaves were rejecting Christianity because of the way it was misused. Was it, rejection of all spirituality or was it was there any uh did you see anything where they supported that slaves were kind of embracing that atheism um not as much in the slave narrative tradition um uh anthony Penn uh, talks about a there are a couple of old older narratives that tap into or seem to tell a story absent of God. 
so, so there is within the narrative tradition some evidence of it. But what happens later in the tradition, right, after 1839, so 1837, 38, there's a prominent white abolitionist by the name of uh, uh, Theodore Weld who publishes a book called Slavery As It Is. When he publishes this book, he says, we need more narratives from people who have been enslaved. And he goes through this kind of list of things that, uh, that we, we, we want to hear about how people are eating, right? He's a prominent white abolitionist, one of the most prominent in his day in, the, in that period in the 1830s. Uh, he gets, he, eventually he marries one of the Grimke sisters, right? He's a prominent white uh, Southern eva uh, uh, evangelist, uh, uh, sorry, abolitionist. And, and, and when he calls for that, there's kind of a, the narratives or the, the, the genre of the narrative shifts a little bit. So it becomes after 1839 into the 1840s and 50s for sure, leading up to the Civil War, becomes more Christian in some ways. Because now that there's a call for them, there is, there's a certain kind of audience for them, which tends to be a Northern white uh, Christian audience. And so there's, there's, there's a certain kind of story that we want to hear. Uh, and Harriet Jacobs, when she's telling her story, one of the things she, she, on, on the title page, she uses the word degradation. And she uses that word a few times within the narrative. And every time she says, you know what I'm talking about with degradation. And she's actually talking about sexual abuse. But in a 19th century context, you, you don't right? You don't talk about that so publicly. So she uses the word degradation as a way of folks knowing what, she, right? She's implying what everybody, we all know what she's talking about. So uh, that's the Christian way. <laughs> so, 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 so something happens to the narratives after 1840, the 1840s and 1850s, that uh, where the, the themes become more streamlined than prior to that, where you can get a little more flexibility in what folks wanted to talk about, they were a little more free to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, but there wasn't the same kind of audience for them prior to 1840. Uh, and so uh, you didn't have the same kind of uh, uh, money money attached to them. There's an economic factor too, right? So, so lots of uh, folks who escape to the North eventually and escape to Canada start to say, I want to tell my story too, because I need to make a little money. I mean, so, so they actually talk about that in the preface of their, of their volumes. I need to somehow figure out how I'm going to survive. And they start telling those stories. Uh, so there's a, there's a, there's, there's an economic component as well. Um, and you want to tap into the market, uh, so to speak, uh, mm -hmm. in the middle of this, incredible uh, chaos uh, that is happening in the world, right? So you don't want to sell a narrative, a narrative that no one reads, right? It's just, that's not going to be good. You can't get your story out that way either. Uh, and then what kind of effect will you have on the wider population? Um, so, so back to the original question, there's, there's, there's a few, there's a few, but they're early in the tradition. Things become more streamlined uh, after Theodore Wells crying, it out, crying out for more. We need more. Mm -hmm. That's is as you're talking, so much that you're saying is 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 almost like you're you're talking about the past. It almost sounds like you're talking about the present. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's both interesting and sad, right? I mean, so. <laughs> <laughs> what other things that we didn't talk about that you want people to know about the book uh, that you want to highlight uh, before we close out? 
Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, I went into this project originally because I wanted to get at, one of your earlier questions was about critical ways of reading. And I wanted to get into this because I think in, in some ways, there are lots of folks in the general narrative, even in, in biblical scholarship, in, in the larger world of scholarship, there's a general narrative that critical investigation of the Bible didn't happen among black people until uh, post-civil rights. And one of the things that we know for sure is, is that's not true. So folks have been critically engaging scripture for a long time. And I've wanted to just provide some evidence of that. And, um, and, and then I kind of got lost in that evidence. And there were so many things that were being opened up within the narratives. Uh, but I, I really went into it to show that folks have always been active agents in their own freedom not just passive recipients, not just waiting for someone to come free them. They've been active agents of attempting to humanize others, even while people were dehumanizing them. And that took a strength beyond what so many of us can imagine. Uh, so we have to tap into those human resources, not just because they're there, but because their story is our story, and that story is a useful story for thinking about how to survive and thrive in the present contemporary world. So I would want folks to, uh, if they get a chance to read the book, to kind of keep that in mind, um, that, that the, the, the connection between critical investigation of scriptures, humanization, collective identity, these things go together. Theological perspective about God and surviving is not all there is, right? Thriving becomes really important. And these folks who are writing these narratives are interested in thriving. They are interested in thriving. That's amazing. That's amazing. How can people get a copy of your book? Yeah, so uh, you can go through the publisher, Westminster John Knox Press, uh, or you, of course, Amazon has it. Um, and and the, the cost difference is not that much between the two. So... Um, but that's probably the easiest ways to get access to it. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I would encourage folks if, you know, if they have a few dollars to, it's not that expensive. They, they were able, that was one of our uh, requirements up front that it would be accessible to folks. And we wanted not just people in the academy, we wanted people in the pew to be able to, to gain access to, 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 people who are really engaging scripture in everyday ways. So, so we wanted to make sure that the cost was, was reasonable. Um, so and I think awesome. they've been able to do that. Yeah. Are you on social media at all? Very little. I got a Twitter account. So Emerson B. Powery uh, is my Twitter account. Um, but uh, I, I need to break out a little bit in that arena as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I don't have as much of a, a, a uh, thumb, thumb, what we call it, a thumbprint as, as others, you know, so, but we'll, we'll try to do, we'll try to do a little better. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Power. We really, really appreciate your insight and it was very, very helpful. And I know our audience is going to um, be better equipped because of it and get the, and definitely I encourage everybody to get the book, The Genesis of Liberation. I think it's a powerful resource and helpful as we um, live in our our present day where the past can help us uh, navigate the present in powerful ways. So thank you so much again, Dr. Powers. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for what you're doing with the Jew3 Project.
Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.